Around the world, people are calling for the dismantling of centuries-old systems of oppression and the creation of more just, equitable, and inclusive communities. Many of us are seeking answers to how we can move forward. How can we, as school communities, not pay lip service by only declaring anti-racist values, but actually enact the work of justice and reconciliation through education, action, and lasting change? Hello, and thank you for tuning into Pep Talks, podcast on educational possibilities, produced by the National Coalition of Girls Schools. I'm Olivia Haas, your host. In this episode, I'm joined by educators at two NCGS member schools, Melissa Brown, who's a member of the NCGS Board of Trustees and the Director of Diversity, Wellbeing, and Global Education at Holden Arms School, located in Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. in the United States and Deanne King, head of St. Mary's School Waverly in Johannesburg, South Africa. In the face of the racial reckoning resonating around the world, Melissa, Deanne, and I will discuss the imperative need to build anti-racist school communities in which every member feels an equal sense of belonging and how educators will play an especially critical role in this work. Before we dive into our conversation, I'm joined by NCGS Executive Director Megan Murphy, to share highlights of upcoming NCGS programming. Megan, what are a few of the things NCGS has planned for the new year? Thank you, Olivia. Well, I think related to today's discussion with Melissa and Deanne, NCGS will have numerous future opportunities for educators to engage in this really important anti-racism work that we're doing. For example, in the near term, on February 2nd and 3rd of 2021, NCGS will offer its second Virtual Educating Girls Symposium on building inclusive anti-racist school communities. This symposium will offer several peer-led breakout sessions related to the really good diversity, equity, and inclusion work that's happening at girls' schools. The call for proposals to present at this virtual symposium are open through November 22nd. Then, Olivia, in June 21st, 22nd, and 23rd of 2021, NCGS will host its annual conference, which will also be held virtually. The theme will be girls' schools, building communities of belonging, places where we embrace and value diversity, be it race, religion, political affiliation, as sources of strength and opportunity for all. The call for proposals to present at that conference open in early November. And then in terms of some other professional learning opportunities, NCGS will be offering another Beyond the Book author series. And this one will be with Karen Gross beginning at the end of January. It's a four-part online discussion series, and it's going to delve deeply into Karen's book, which is entitled Trauma Doesn't Stop at the School Door, Strategies and Solutions for Educators Pre-K Through College. And Olivia, I think we've all been experiencing some level of trauma, grief, and disruption to our lives over lost social connection, the sexual abuse reckoning inspired by the Me Too and Time's Up movements, and the series of ongoing events that spark the racial reckoning, which is happening around the world. And so I think that Karen's expertise is really going to help us to deal directly with how to identify the signs of trauma in our students, also how trauma affects student learning, as well as how teachers are impacted themselves. Registration for Beyond the Book is currently open, and I really hope to see many of our colleagues at one or both of those upcoming events. Thanks, Megan. I know the entire NCGS team is excited to provide these professional learning opportunities 
to faculty and administrators at our member schools. We encourage all of you to visit the professional development section of the NCGS website at ncgs.org to learn more and for registration information. Before I am joined by today's guests, I wanted to provide a brief glossary of terms that you'll be hearing throughout the discussion. These are words our schools are using frequently, but what exactly do they mean within the context of building anti-racist school communities? Diversity is the range of differences among groups of people and individuals that's necessary to achieve excellence in all areas of school life and beyond. Equity is fair and just access to opportunities and resources in recognition of the advantages and disadvantages that have historically existed and still exist. Inclusion is the intentional, active, and continuous celebration of and engagement with diversity to ensure that every community member feels valued and experiences a deep sense of belonging. And social justice is the active process of identifying and dismantling systems of oppression and privilege in order to achieve equity. Special thanks to NCGS member Ms. Hall School for these definitions, which were the product of a year of writing, reflection, and revision by the school's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Steering Committee, along with Ms. Hall's leadership team and board. Melissa and Deanne, it's wonderful to have you on Pep Talks today. I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to share your insights and expertise. To get us started, let me briefly set the stage. Girls' schools were founded to address a clear inequity. Girls were not afforded the same educational opportunities as boys. For generations, girls' schools have led the way as epicenters for dismantling a wide range of systemic injustices, from equal access to education, to voting rights, to closing the gender gap. While creating inclusive communities where diverse voices and experiences are heard and valued is a cornerstone of girls' schools, there's no denying we're at a turning point in our history, not just as girls' schools, but individually as nations and collectively as a world. Melissa and Deanne, why do you think girls' schools are uniquely positioned to do this work? And conversely, what unique challenges do our schools face? Melissa, let's start with you. Thank you, Olivia, for having us. I think that for all the reasons you just laid out, girls' schools know how to work towards equity. We are resistors. This is what we do naturally. Here at Holton, affinity groups and allied spaces are a staple of our equity work. And we often talk about Holton as an affinity space for the development of strong senses of identity as girls and women. We are really realizing um, that we need to think more expansively about the educational experience that we give. Deanne, would you like to add your thoughts? Thank you, Olivia. Yes, to follow on from what Melissa has said, I suppose we've been positioned as girls' schools to really be pushing against the bias in society, discrimination in society. And so with that, that background, that experience, I think that we are well-placed to take forward the real challenge, I suppose, of breaking down systemic racism, systemic dis discrimination that exists in our schools. I think we have learned a lot um, ha having a focus on, on women and, and that will empower us to move forward and uh, to make sure that it filters into every aspect of, of our society. 
So Deanne, how does the intersection of race and gender affect how Black and brown girls view themselves and others view them? Certainly in South Africa, I think because of the intersectionality of, of women and race, Black women are really leading in, in terms of gender uh, equity in, in our society. So they really bring a heightened awareness, I think, to, uh, to our schools about um, the history of women, the history of black women um, in South Africa. And I think that the double oppression that they have experienced and um, sort of some of the complexities that, that black women have experienced in South Africa means that they um, in many ways are leading and, and teaching all of us about how they want to overcome not only the, the oppression that they have suffered as, as black women, but also um, in terms of their, their gender. So I think in South Africa, in the, in the South African context particularly, black women are leaders um, in the whole anti-racist movement. Yeah, I think the intersectionality of race and gender is really complicated. Um, we're really thinking about the health and well-being of our young black women here because where they connect with their peers as women, their race is really salient here in a primarily white institution. They often have to lead um, the equity work or feel compelled to lead the equity work because it's so personally important to those of us. As a black mother, teacher, administrator, I see the weariness of it um, weighing on our employees, our faculty, our staff, and our students. And I think that carrying that sort of double load as a woman and then as a black woman and needing to push our schools to be better, to really live into our mission is seeming to wear on our students. And I agree with Deanne that their peers see them as leaders in all of this. Um, but I think that in some ways, our students are telling us that they need this to be everyone's work, that they really need their white and Asian and Latinx sisters to and indigenous sisters to kind of join them in this work. And I'm hearing that more and more every day. You both talked a lot about leadership and um, a new study that actually just came out in August of this year by Dr. Charlotte Jacobs, who's at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education found that 48% of Black girls self-identify as leaders, which is the highest of all racial and ethnic groups. Yet, obviously, bias is a huge barrier, a key barrier to them being able to embrace this identity and engage in different forms of leadership. What's happening, do you think, in your opinions, in our schools that keeps more Black girls from moving into leadership roles? And how are your schools working to counteract this trend? Melissa, I'd love to hear from you first. Yeah, when I think about the leadership at our school, many of our Black girls take on leadership roles, formally and informally. They do see themselves as leaders. They do recognize their inner strength and their ability to resist and to push us to be better. They're classroom teachers, they're administrators. I think that in schools like ours, we value tradition. And sometimes tradition is code for we like things the way they are. We like leadership the way it has always been. And there are people and rules and policies and practices that hold those 
things in place. And I think that sometimes what tools like ours need to do is we need to take a hard, critical look at the way we do school. And we need to lean away from tradition, even though that is what, that's kind of the glue that holds our communities together. We need to be brave and we need to question. I think we need to ensure that we're being very deliberate and intentional about how we set up elections and how we set up leadership roles. We need to make sure that there isn't a sort of idealized personality or way of being that gets leadership. There really is just Colton students and their complexity and diversity is beautiful and we need that and want it and depend on it for excellence. Deanne, your thoughts? Yes, I think in the in the past decade, the students, black students, have really identified leadership and student leadership positions as a way to begin to tackle some of the traditions that they felt were, were sort of holding holding them back. And um, they really worked at dismantling some of the institutional culture that wasn't um, that wasn't a fit for them. So I think that they they really identified leadership positions as being a way to to challenge the the traditions, the ethos of of St Mary's, and and bring their own flavour. So in fact, um, you know, the student leadership at St Mary's is is majority black girls, and and I think they feel very empowered, and they've used those positions to to bring about change and an institutional shift and and change in our traditions. So our academic year um, is drawing to a close in the next month or so. So we've just elected students uh, leaders for 2021 and out of the top seven positions, five of them are filled by black girls. Great. Thank you. So one of the things, Melissa, that you noted was the need to sort of change the way we, we think about school. So let's talk about curriculum. As we think about our curricula in our schools, we need to ask who's determining the main narrative. How do you both think that we can bring stories of girls and women of color to the forefront in ways that are normalized, not tokenized within curricula? So I think this is so important. And this is part of the work that we're trying to do at Holton. And it it spans about five years back um, when we did our reaccreditation and really centered um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, but has even become more important as we are tightening our focus on anti-racism. We need to tell a more complete, a more expansive story of life, whether it be through our history, through our literature courses, through our world language courses. Traditionally in the United States, there is a narrative that centers whiteness and maleness, right? And then in schools like ours, we've really tried to center, you know, women, but they've often been white women. And that even then it's been sort of on the margins, right? You're telling the story and let me tell you what women were doing during this time. And that white experience has often been synonymous with the American experience. What we're really, really trying to do is expand that. Like I said, tell a more complete story and not just tell flashpoints around what we have known perhaps 
in this very traditional way of learning about the African-American or black experience in the United States and in the world. But really make sure that we are including moments of joy, moments of just living, moments of sorrow, moments of mediocrity, but centering black and brown experiences and female experiences and trans experiences and gay experiences and experiences that are not Christian-centered all the time. So those are the things that we need to do. And we need to tell lots of stories because oftentimes it's, it's the single story that leaves our students with one idea of who or what any group of people is. And so we're really working hard on that. Um, we've developed some goals and competencies to really drive our curricular expansion, review and a renewal process. And um, we're working at it from every single academic, arts and athletic areas of the school. So, Dan, how are you all thinking about curricula in South Africa? I think Melissa has covered quite a lot of the ways in which we are trying to center women and in, in our curricula. But I think the focus here is, is really around what we term decolonizing a curriculum or Africanizing a curriculum, paying a lot of attention to unearthing African women writers who, who have been lost and uh, who, who haven't come to the fore in terms of our curriculum. So placing a lot of um, emphasis, as Melissa said, on stories, on individual stories, on um, heritage and the, the diverse heritage that we have in our classrooms and celebrating that through, I suppose, literacy, through literature, through our language policy, um, really trying to make a meaningful impact at looking at women in, in different case studies and scenarios, etc. I mean, it's, it's been a wonderful journey to, to focus on African women writers because there is so much that, that we have come across that has been lost to us for, for decades and generations. Dan, I would love to hear from you that in the years following apartheid, how have you seen the conversation about anti-racism move forward in your school community and what lessons have been learned and where do challenges still persist? I think in the post-apartheid years, so following our, our democracy of, of 1994, the focus was on, on transformation and, and perhaps some of the more tangible aspects of, of transformation. And in many ways, I, I think that is still ongoing. Uh, that work is ongoing. But recently, we've, we've really had to do a lot of work at looking at systemic racism and how in many institutions, discrimination was perpetuated because of the social, socioeconomic makeup of, of our society, um, because of tradition, because of particular ethos, etc. And so more recently, we, we've had to really do a whole review and analysis of, of policy, of procedure, of sort of the unspoken, I suppose, aspects and, and, and traditions in, in, our, in our institutions and how, how those were almost upholding, I suppose, aspects of, of our past in, instead of embracing a, a new anti-racist society. South Africans are very aware that perhaps we have lost 
a lot of ground in having celebrated democracy and looked to a future without really embracing the hard work that each and every individual has to do to transform a society completely. Deanne, how's the current global racial reckoning playing out in South Africa? How is it similar or different from what you're hearing about in the United States? In many ways, it is similar. But I think what we feel here is is the real urgency to do this work. Um, I think we recognize, and certainly at St. Mary's, we we talk about that that this is really about the future uh, of our school, the the existence of the school, the sustainability of St. Mary's. It's not work that we can can delay or that we can choose a, a comfortable pace. We really need to place ourselves in an uncomfortable position and feel the urgency of the work. I think in some ways that may be different to to what is playing out in the United States, but really that that comes from our very dark past and that we have, have run out of time in terms of making some of these shifts and changes. I believe that we are in a moment in the United States, similar to what you're saying, Deanne, where time is up and students in our classrooms right now that are resisting and fighting and pushing are not willing to be patient anymore, nor should they be. They are impassioned, they are resolute, they are strong, and they are ready to take their place nationally. I think we're grappling with that. I think power does not give itself up. And I think that we are at a place where those in power are holding on tight and those resistors are resisting with all of their might. I think our job as educators is to continue to push our students to push democracy. How do you start having conversations about anti-racism and social justice with our youngest learners? How do you prepare your faculty to facilitate these discussions? So this is really interesting. So we know that as early as three months, children are seeing racial difference. So to to delude ourselves to think that our students aren't thinking about these things, aren't having questions about these things, aren't noticing stories that they're being told, messages that they're being given, is not to our benefit. We use some really wonderful resources. There's a wonderful resource called Biased Education for Young Children and Ourselves, and it is for pre-K students. And it starts by um, thinking about concepts like fair versus equal, oops and ouch moments. It talks about building criticality, this idea of Um, If you're reading a book to young children and you have a mommy sweeping the floor and a daddy going to work, you ask, huh, do all mommies sweep the floor? Do all daddies go to work? And you can do that kind of questioning with young children about all kinds of ideas around power and privilege. And so we work Um, with that resource. Teaching tolerance here in the United States is an excellent, excellent resource. Um, Facing history in ourselves. We're thinking about affinity spaces for our very young students. We have developed 
a three through 12 spiraling curriculum that really centers our three big priorities, diversity, well-being, and global education, and really um, has students developing concepts and ideas and practicing with these with these concepts and ideas in um, classes so that they can use them as launching points in their academic arts and athletic classes. So those are the things that we do. I think racial literacy training for faculty is, is really, really important. And uh, from as young as possible to get children to talk and to express difference in where, where they come from and, and their homes and their lives and their family traditions and structures so that there's a celebration of, of diversity in the room from very young and I think the younger the better, but obviously um, to make sure that the teachers who are leading that are very comfortable to lead those conversations to that will build um, the children and build bridges between or amongst the children. So let's talk a little bit about our older students. How are you engaging older students and your alumni in your school's anti-racism initiatives and also your parents and your board of trustees and educators? Olivia, it's certainly a, a community project from the board of the school where diversity, equity, inclusion is, is a standing agenda item. We also have real proactive parent body where we have parent forums who help us co-create within the school, whether that's related to uh, curriculum, curriculum change, questioning of, of traditions or regulations that, that they feel do not further the, the project of, of anti-racism. And then engaging alumni too. Um, our alumni are really involved in what structures they feel um, would benefit uh, the girls at school, given their experience, given their experience of, of having um, attended the school. And then down to, to the students who have committees, diversity committees or committees that run certain initiatives in the school. So I think you, you almost do need to approach this work on, on different levels and with different uh, stakeholders all working uh, towards the same outcome because you, you need a community uh, to buy into to what we're hoping to achieve as a school. Something that I want to circle back to, you said, Melissa, at the start of our conversation, that anti-racist work is the work of all and not just the work of one, which is something that's been resonating throughout this entire conversation um, that both both you and, and Deanne have been sharing. How do we ensure that our school communities are united in anti-racism work so that the undue weight isn't placed on the shoulders of just a few, such as your faculty of color and your senior administrators? So I think that is the question. I think that we really need to understand that inequities for any one group in a society are inequities for all. If you look at the United States and the way, just the ways our students are, that how our students are doing in comparison to other countries, you will see that we are falling behind. I think that has a lot to do with inequities. I think that we have to make sure that everyone in our community understands that when we are upholding oppressive systems, 
we are stunting our own growth. And I'm not sure that that is always clear, but we need our students and our parents to understand that. We need our students to be, like Deanne said, racially literate, to send our white students out into the world without the skill of being able to talk about race in an informed way, be left out of a conversation because you don't ever run into it, or you live in segregation, or you haven't heard of these things, is a disservice. If we are truly developing leadership, cultivating leadership in our schools, our leaders need to live diverse lives. They need to have racial literacy. They need to understand um, systems and systemic oppression in deep, deep ways. They need to be active and feel compelled to dismantle those inequities. And, th and that's what we're working on. Um, we are really looking at whiteness at Holton this year. Um, and we are looking at what it's not to center whiteness, which sometimes feels ironic when we're talking about anti-racist work, but to name it as the invisible force in the room. If you don't name it, you can't see it and you can't begin to start dismantling the myth of white supremacy. So Deanne, how are you thinking about this in South Africa? Melissa's response, I think, is, is really comprehensive and, and covers a lot of, of the, the approach that we have and, and the beliefs that we have. I think that for me, what's very important is, is, is a community. And I think that there's a choice to be part of the community and part of uh, attending St. Mary's or or wanting uh, your child to be educated at St. Mary's is about really committing to to the the anti-racist work that we do at St. Mary's, wanting to be a part of that solution, uh, wanting to be a part of a diverse community that will advantage and uh, really, I, I suppose, empower the women that leave us to go on to be successful in a world that is increasingly more and more diverse and has to be. So I think that it, it really is, is about getting stakeholders to see the value uh, in attending a school that does this uh, or has a, a focus on, on anti-racism and, um, and works for equity and social justice in our society. Melissa, Holden Arms just recently released a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging roadmap to anti-racist education. What was this process like? Who was involved in its creation? What were the questions that you were looking to answer? So as I mentioned before, for the last five years, as an answer to our reaccreditation, we took that um, process for the um, Association of Independent Maryland Schools very, very seriously. And we were thinking about the fact that we had a very robust global education program, but really we're not um, centering as we should have this idea of understanding the person across the world, but ignoring the person that's sitting right next to you. And so we, we really did a self-study and then had our peer schools come in and and kind of do a review. And we decided to center diversity, equity, and inclusion, well-being, 
and global education as these um, this sort of mix of what students really need to understand their world and to function, but actually to thrive in the world. And so from that moment, when I um, took on the position of director of diversity, I, I began listening to our students and they telling us that our mission was missing. And so this process of listening to students, particularly our allied groups in the upper school, our Black Student Union, our Asian Alliance, our um, Spectrum Club, LGBTQIA+, um, and they were telling us what they needed. And then finally, um, last year, we asked um, BSU to come and visit with each division and to talk to us about what they needed from us as educators. And they did, and very, very clearly told us what they needed. And I think as an administrative team, we humbly listened to that. And we said, we, we need to think about the big picture ideas. We need to think about it, look at ourselves in the mirror, um, as as painful as that is, because as as administrators at, at Holton, I think we really, and I think all of our teachers as well, we really believe in um, working with young people um, and and nurturing them and being there for them and seeing that we were missing the mark in so many ways really was a catalyst for putting the brakes on and putting our heads together and thinking about what was it that we needed to do. And this was a full court press. So we we were um, working with admissions. We were working with college counseling. Um, we were working with our three through 12 um, academic curriculum, sports, transportation, um, the board, uh, the administrative team. And we really focused on each one of those big ideas that were expressed to us. And kind of those groups got together to think about what action can we take? So now we've heard very clearly what our students need from us. Um, this is no longer a choice, but rather an obligation. Um, because if we are who we say we are, then we need to ensure that we are that for every single student and every single family. It's really about belonging. And we noticed that there was a big lack of belonging for our black students. They were here, but a lot of them would say they kind of made it through Holton. That is not what we want their experience to be. We want, as Mrs. Holton always said, we want our students to feel it deep sense of belonging, a deep sense of the idea that this is their school and that they see themselves reflected not only in the curriculum, but the way that we do school. And so that's sort of the zeitgeist behind that roadmap. And the roadmap is only for 2021 because we understand this to be an ongoing perpetual kind of project. And we need to make sure that we continue to listen and get feedback from our community, all of those constituencies that we named before, that we continue to keep the lines of communication open.
um, so that we know and that we're not caught off guard and we're not short-sighted in our vision for what education can be here at Holton. Deanne, I would love for you to share what some initiatives St. Mary's has most recently been working on in the area of anti-racist work. We um, have made experience and individual experience as um, the lead into into our uh, most recent approach. And that has meant that we've done a review and a deep analysis of individual experience at St. Mary's. Um, and that means having a look at our policies, having a look at our procedures, having a look at how the girls are reflected with, within the school, from language to, to music to um, curriculum. And I think much as um, Melissa has said, it, it really you, you have to look at all the different um, aspects of, of the school and how they all work together in, in defining that experience and, and also opening um, up to, to providing myriad uh, experiences for, for the girls. So for us, we've placed a lot of emphasis on Indigenous languages and including more uh, Indigenous languages into the curriculum. In fact, it's become a, an aspect of our professional development that our faculty have to learn an African language. And we use a lot more African music, African culture, even when it comes to our chapel services, our assemblies, the way we, um, the way our school looks, and that that we maybe from the gardens having more focus on um, indigenous gardens to what we hang on our walls, um, to who we celebrate at uh, key events, etc. So. Um, we're really trying to to shift not only how we look and how we sound as a school, but how we experience through through all the different children and uh, who come who come to us, obviously from different cultures and different heritage and different religions, etc. So we put a, a lot of effort into celebrating um, heritage. And, and the array of her heritage in the school. So really, really trying to, to paint, I suppose, a whole new um, picture of, of what the school looks like and sounds like and how it's experienced. Melissa and Deanne, thank you so much for speaking with me today. The work of building inclusive, anti-racist communities is never done. It's work that must be ongoing and in the individual choices we make and the institutional policies we enact. We must listen and learn, grow and adapt as we support our girls by building the school communities they deserve. Again, thank you for sharing your insights into some of the ways our schools can continue this work. I have no doubt our educators will benefit greatly from what you've shared today. Stay current on the latest NCGS offerings, resources, and research by subscribing to the Coalition Connection newsletter found in the news section at ncgs.org. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Girls Schools. Thank you for listening. Pep Talks is produced by the National Coalition of Girls Schools, the leading advocate for girls schools, connecting and collaborating globally with individuals, schools, and organizations dedicated to educating and empowering girls. <laughs>